Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, good afternoon and salutation, greetings and salutation from the great state of Alabama. Hope everybody's had a wonderful day. Been a little warm, but not too warm here where we are. A few showers off and on all day. But I thought I would get back on and do a theology Thursday. And as always, we'll be putting this up on our YouTube and Rumble and then uh, it'll go on the on the podcast as well, RK Ministries podcast. You can find that wherever podcasts are available. And so, uh, last week I made an, an appeal for those who might watch and listen to give some input on the direction of Theology Thursday. So, didn't hear back from anybody. So, today I'm going to go ahead and just finish up. Andy Stanley had one last sermon on his fundamental list. Uh, so it's a series where he had eight sermons and he has eight fundamental things that you need to believe to be a follower <clears throat> of Jesus Christ. So I thought we would tackle that last sermon. And I think this last sermon is really where he was ultimately driving to from the very beginning, uh, of this, uh, series and the last sermon, the ultimate fundamental here and the things he says, really nothing new to what Andy Stanley has said in the past because he's been this way he's been on this train for quite some time uh all the way back uh when he'll talk about in this sermon where he did he heard a um i guess it was a debate or at least a, a somewhat of a debate or discussion with sam harris at a college campus and he was dismantling mantling the bible and so that put uh, andy stanley on a particular course of action and thought as it relates to how he goes about uh, preaching and teaching and, and um, I guess, evangelizing, doing, doing apologetics. And while a lot of what he says, to be fair to him, a lot of what he says, there, there's truth in it, okay? But this uh, final sermon uh, is probably the most, uh, I say the most egregious to me right now, I, I, without rec- recalling everything he said in the other eight, um, th- this is one of the most egregious uh, po- uh, sermons or, or points or truths that drives the way he thinks uh, right now. And, it, it, and to me, it's one of those that ought to cause us to have pause. If you're a follower of Andy Stanley or whatever, it, it, it at least ought to cause you to think real long and hard about it, <clears throat> especially if you are a... Uh, a believer who's interested in sanctification and interested in um, uh, grounding your faith in in God's word. So, um, with that said, we'll, we'll get we'll get right to it, I guess. Uh, but I guess what I was saying is, after I got off on that introduction, is hey, if you have a direction that you'd like to see us go on Theology Thursdays, if we continue to do that, uh, I was thinking either we could do systematic theology, which this what we're talking about here would be in some ways part of that. And, and that would probably lead into some biblical theology theology as well, because you can't really can't have systematic theology without biblical theology. And it's from that biblical theology that uh, theology is systematized later into categories. And so systematic theology is just going through the categories of uh, biblical theology and deep in outlining all of those. And so 
we could we could do that um, because it would deal with things like the, who God is. Uh, it would deal with things uh, who man is, anthropology, uh, deal with the issue of sin, which Andy Stanley deals with that in this sermon in a very um, uh, pitiful way, I think. But uh, it'll deal with sin, just all the attri- all the areas, uh, categories of theology that we always have to deal with in, our, in life. So we could do that. Or I thought about maybe some church history. Church history would be a little bit more difficult for me, but that's okay. Up for the challenge, uh, we would learn as we go in some areas. I mean, I've had some church history, but uh, not been a student of church history like I ought to have been a student of church history. But anyway. Uh, just something to think about, and if you got any com- comments on that, let me know. If not, I'll just decide what I want to do and keep on trucking. So, let's get into this uh, particular sermon. Again, I- I'm not technologically savvy enough to, at this point, um, and with the, what I have to work with to be able to show you videos and let you hear his own words, but I did download the transcript from YouTube, uh, which is about 11 pages long. It's probably one of the longer sermons that you, you would hear from Andy Stanley. It goes over 40 minutes. And generally, he's around about 30, 35 uh, minutes. So uh, this one a little bit more lengthy, and we won't read every word of it, but I thought we would uh, we would just kind of hit some highlights or things that stood out to me that I think we ought to review so we'll know kind of where he's come from and then hit the main point of what it is that he's talking about and then give some insights on <clears throat> on why I think he is in error or in error. So the, the, the way he starts off again is, is kind of giving background on why he come to think and preach and do apologetics and ministry the way he's doing it. And he starts off with, and this one is 15 years ago, he says that he saw this video, this YouTube video, and it, he didn't. He never names the guy in this sermon, but if you'll go back, there's a Dallas, and I didn't put the link down, but you can Google Andy Stanley, Dallas Theological Seminary, and you can find a YouTube uh uh, it was kind of a lecture that he did at Dallas Theological Seminary, which he's an alma mater of. And he tells us a very similar story about this at that time at, in the Dallas Theological Seminary YouTube video. It was nine years uh, that he had. So it's been a few uh, a few years since that video. But he tells who the person it is. It is uh, a- the atheist Sam Harris. Uh, who ultimately uh, attacks the Bible and you know goes through his critique. One of the famous ones he does is about slavery. So anyway, he goes and tries to dismantle the Bible because the premise is, and this is the this is Andy Stanley setting up where he's going in this sermon. The, the premise is that if we anchor our faith on uh, an inerrant, infallible scripture then if someone comes along and is able to dismantle that scripture, then that's why a lot of people move away or fall away from uh, the faith. So along and short of what Andy Stanley is going to do, and it really, it really, he's done this before. He always goes all the way back to this idea of unhitching from the old Testament. Now I want to be fair in trying to understand his his motives and why okay well i don't agree with his method uh i i understand i think the motives of this because the reality is in most churches today the way we teach and the way we preach uh we we are really emotive 
and we're really about how we feel and it's usually a 12 12 ways to know how to do this and six ways to know how to do that or you know 10 ways to be a better this or, or that and so we never really get down into a systematic expository examination of scripture where we out underline or or we bring out of scripture doctrinal truth and theological truth so that we understand who God is, who we are, and why it is we ought to live the way we ought to live. And so the thing he says is if there's a person who ha- who doesn't have that theological foundation, that uh, if someone's able to dismantle the scripture in that way or bring question in their mind to the scripture and the validity of the scripture, the infallibility or inerrancy of the scripture, that they can, they can, they can cause that person's faith to come tumbling tumbling down and so his idea and again it's a minimalistic idea is to use uh, to ground our and, and I, I don't know if i can remember exactly how he says this in it's in the sermon we all just get to it but one of the things he says we need to ground our faith in the event <clears throat> of the resurrection of jesus christ which created this movement or church uh, which ultimately brought us the Bible that we have. So he goes all the way back to the resurrection. And and, and there is truth in that, that our faith is grounded in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, right? But the error the that I think Andy Stan is making, and maybe we'll flesh this out as we go through, is that the only way we, the primary way we know about Jesus and what he did is from Scripture. And so let's just get into this and because um, I could ramble on and, and give you all of it, but I want you to hear some of his words and then I will comment as I think. But we'll try to keep it to a minimum because I'm going to have to read this to you. But you can go look this up on YouTube. It's the fundamental list and it's uh, part number eight, the final one. Uh, so again, he starts out, this is at, uh, at 42 seconds in and he talks about this assumption that many Christians hold. And many, in fact, most evangelical Christians hold the one I was raised with. So this is what he was taught, raised on, uh, whatever this assumption is. And the assumption was a false assumption. So this assumption that he was raised on, uh, and most evangelicals believe, he says, is a false assumption. But again, uh, that the basically, and again, the way this uh, transcript is and the way he preaches, he does repeat himself uh, quite a bit, like a lot of us do. Uh, That's not a critique on him. It's just, it makes it hard reading (laughs) this. So, uh, but again, he he goes on, is that the, basically he was, uh, his whole talk, talking about Sam Harris, was based on the assumption that the foundation of our faith Uh, what makes Christianity viable, what makes Christianity Christianity, or what makes it sustainable and plausible, that the foundation of our faith is a Bible without any errors. Now, again, this is the assumption, he says, that Sam Harris was attacking, and it's the assumption he grew up with that he was taught, and he says that most evangelicals believe, but he says this assumption is an error. So it is an error from Andy Stanley's opinion uh, in this sermon that we would hold to an inerrant or infallible scripture. Now, maybe we need to define some terms. Uh, inerrancy is simply, or to put it simply, is the idea that the scripture uh, does not, I guess, assert falsehood 
that the Christian, the scripture asserts truth. Okay. And so in other words, the scripture points to the truth of what God wanted to reveal to us. And it is true in that sense, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it would not be infallible. So infallibility is that there is no possibility that the scripture would be able to err in any way because God is not able to err in any way. Therefore, if God is the author of scripture and he is, he is inspired, he inspired scripture and he talks about inspiration here a little bit, but inspiration, God moved men through the working of the Holy Spirit in their life. He used their personality and he used their context historically he used their language the language that they they grew up in the language they knew and understood he used their personalities and he moved them along he didn't dictate like the quran it wasn't dictated uh, to them he moved them along and impressed upon them through the work and person of the holy spirit to um, put forth his revelation to humanity and so inerrancy is that it asserts truth and infallibility means there's no possibility for it to err. And so he says that is that is a false assumption. So that right in and of itself, that goes against uh, Orthodox Christianity uh, from the get go. Now, he makes the argument that 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 has this has never been uh, the valid uh, belief of uh, people throughout church history. But it, it has all the way back to Augustine, all the way back to the apostles, all the way back to Jesus, who said the scripture could not be uh, divided. And so uh, he goes on, he says, so what happens, the implication is, uh, this is me, the implication is what happens is he, he, he makes this argument, hey, look, at all these errors in the Bible. And so he, doesn't ever, he never lists what those errors are. Um, and, and again, I know Sam Harris talks about the slavery and that kind of stuff in the Bible. But he never lists what those errors would be. He's just making the point that he would attack the Bible and, and point out several errors, whether it be pointed out, he says in this, in this paragraph, historical errors or scientific errors, um, just some absurd things that were in the Old Testament in particular, then some things in the New Testament as well. Uh, and, and his point is these things are, aren't true. So if these things aren't true, then the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, then the Bible can't be trusted. And if all of it is historically and mathematically and scientifically um, accurate or inaccurate, I, I think it should say, uh, then why would anybody believe any of it right? Uh, any of it. It's kind, of, it's kind of wooden and convoluted the way it reads. But anyway, the point is, if, if, if the Bible's not... And to use his words, not mathematically, historically, scientifically accurate, then why would anybody believe the Bible? And if they don't believe the Bible, if that's the foundation of their faith, then it comes down like a house of cards. And of course, I've made this statement before early on in this sermon series and dealing with Andy Stanley, that one of the things you, you and I need to understand, and Andy, Andy Stanley knows this, all right? He's not an ignorant man. He knows this, that the Bible in no way is a science book, Okay? It's not technical in that sense that it technically uh, demonstrates to us scientific uh, proofs and evidences. Uh, the Bible, for the most part, is a, is a um, chronology of God's redemptive work in humanity. And it's tracing out God's history and his working through history to bring about the Messiah. And it traces his working with a particular group of people in the Old Testament. 
the Jewish people, and it traces his working with uh, the the New Testament or New Covenant and the one new man of God, Gentiles and Jews who come to faith in Jesus Christ in the New Testament shows us that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was talking about. Now, the sci- now the Bible does have sci- scientific information in it, uh, right? And we see things from a human perspective in there. And, and we, th- we say things today that we read about in the Bible, and we still say it, but we know the scientific truth of it like we talk about the sun rising and setting and we know the sun doesn't rise and set as the uh, uh that the sun uh appears to rise and set because of the rotation of the earth and we know that the earth is not the center of the universe right uh but anyway uh we we know scientific truth but we still speak from our human perspective even today and the bible does those kinds of things but Anyway, that, that's his premise, is if we can prove things in the Bible or things show things in the Bible are incorrect and wrong, then uh, we, we, we can topple all of Christianity. And he goes on in this statement, and this is one of the troubling things to me in, in this next couple of sentences. He says, the assumption being if there is an error in the Bible, Christianity becomes uh, indefensible. It's a house of cards. And, and here's the thing that concerns me about his, uh, about his belief. And he just says this in passing. He doesn't elaborate on this, but there is there's some tales in this statement. It says, if you just pull out the creation account. So in other words, if you buy into the idea of uh, evolution, the Big Bang, and all those kinds of things, and, and you buy that hook, line, and sinker, then he's saying, hey, then you just discredited what Genesis is, is saying to us. And, and I've done a podcast on this before about the idea of whether or not a Christian can believe in uh, evolution uh, and be a Christian. And the comment I made there, the, 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 the underlying uh, answer was, yes, they can believe that, but they will be in error. Uh, they, they will be against the Bible. They will be contra Bible because uh, the Bible makes it very clear that uh, it to speak of the Bible in, in, in this way, that the Bible makes it clear that the, that it understands and promotes a six-day creation. And how do we know that? Well, we're doing a study through the Ten Commandments at uh, Friendship Baptist Church on Sunday mornings, and uh, we're, we're about to head into the Sixth Commandment, Thou Shalt Not Murder. But the Fourth Commandment is really telling on this issue of creation, because there are people who try to argue uh, about creation, whether yom in Genesis means a 24-hour day or just a period of time, and then you can go to verses, you know, in Peter where it talks about I can't remember first or second Peter, but in for in, in Peter's one of Peter's epistles, people are getting antsy about the return of Christ. He hadn't come yet, and this is where Peter says God's not slack concerning His promises; some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance or faith and there's this phrase in there that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day with god and so some people would use yom i think even um william lane craig would lean this way that yom is not necessarily a 24-hour day uh, that it's a it's a period of time but when you go to what god said what god wrote if you look at uh exodus if you believe the bible if you go to exodus and you read what god wrote in exodus when he gave the Ten Commandments, because it says at the beginning of chapter 20 in Exodus that God spoke all these things. And then we know from other places in Exodus that God wrote these with his hand, his finger, if you will, speaking of God in an anthropomorphic way, that this is the word of God that came directly from God to Moses and to the children of Israel. It said that God in the 
fourth commandment says to keep the Sabbath day holy, to honor it and keep it holy because in six days he created the earth and the sea and everything that was in it, my paraphrase. And so what does the fifth command or the fourth commandment assume? The fourth commandment assumes a 24 hour day because it assumes or it demands for us to work six days, six 24 hour days and rest on the seventh day or, or honor the seventh day and keep it, keep it holy. And you can go listen to that sermon either on my podcast, you can find it, or you can find it um, on uh, Friendship Baptist Church, the YouTube page or YouTube uh, channel, and on my own YouTube channel, you can find those sermons. Well, not that sermon. You'll only find it on my podcast. You'll find it on Friendship Baptist Church's YouTube uh, or either on our Facebook Live from Friendship Baptist Church. But anyway, uh, so it it seems as though he might even buy into this idea that, you know, uh, evolution is is proven science rather than a theory. Well, if you do believe that, then you are in opposition to what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, you can pull out Leviticus. What, is, what does he mean by that statement? You can pull out Leviticus. Well, the only thing I can think about is it's where everybody goes, like Sam Harris or anybody else, whenever they want to attack the Bible and they go to Leviticus, they go to all of these ceremonial and civil laws. They go to, in particular to the civil laws that were given to Moses. Uh, right, and I think it's like uh, not being able to have two uh, fabrics in uh, together in the same outfit, and uh, you know all those kinds of things, and those those things that they they bring up about you know stoning, um, uh, you know stoning your children, and all those kinds of things. <clears throat> so, to me, that is a fundamental misunderstanding. It's part of the problem. It's part of the problem that, you know, when he, maybe when he was raised, he, you know, Charles Stanley, God love him, he, he, he had a powerful influence in the Southern Baptist Convention and in Christianity in general, in, in America and around this world, and still does. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know what Andy Stanley picked up or what he, what he taught or what he was taught specifically other than what I've heard of his dad in, in his preaching. But somewhere along the way, it seems though Andy Stanley has bought into the same idea that, hey, these things are crazy that we read about in Leviticus and people bring those kinds of things up. And so that's one of the reasons he's talking about, hey, we need to pull back from the Old Testament because we can't make sense out of those things. Well, again, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of God's intent with the law. And again, we don't have time to hash all of this out, but God's intent with the law, there's a threefold understanding of the law that uh, is generally believed by most uh, Orthodox Christians, that God's law is civil and God's law is ceremonial and God's law is moral. And the civil and ceremonial parts of God's law, and again, I don't have time to teach this completely, but you can go find those sermons. But the moral law, the Ten Commandments, is a summation of uh, of God's total, the totality of God's law. The Ten Commandments becomes categories by which God fleshes out this this moral code into civil and ceremonial laws in Exodus and in Leviticus. If you read on in Exodus, in the very next chapter, God begins to flesh out what he means by some of these categories that are outlined in the Ten Commandments. And so uh, all of these commandments have 
aspects of civil law to them in in the sense that it dealt with how they were to function as a nation among the uh, other nations as a theocracy and then all of these laws have ceremonial aspects that were strictly uh, intended for Israel in their context and in their uh, covenant relationship with God in the world in which they lived. The ceremonial law had to do with how they were to come to God in worship in the sense of the sacrifices and the feast and the festivals and all those kinds of things which all of those ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ in the ceremonial laws and so Jesus when he came, he fulfilled all of those, and those are no longer binding on us. And the civil law aspect of it was specifically for uh, Israel as a theocracy in the context and the time and frame in history when God uh, used them in his redemptive story. And for the most part, those faded away when Israel um, when Israel faded away, as it were, in, in, uh, and ceased to be. Uh, you know, or when the old covenant ceased to be uh, the vehicle through which God was working in, in history. Now we're under the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is a great read if you want to go and try to understand the significance of what was going on in the Old Testament and how those things were shadows that were pointing to the New Testament and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, you know, here's the problem with, with what Andy Stanley, Andy Stanley is trying to do rather than... Uh, pointing people to Christ, rightly so, pointing people to Jesus, his death, burial, his resurrection, the full gospel where Jesus uh, came and he suffered the wrath of God for our sin. He stood in our law place. He took our guilt. He took our shame. Uh, he took our stain of sin and he nailed it to the cross and he became the propitiation and appeasing of God's wrath. And instead of fleshing out how these laws uh, pointed to the fulfillment that Jesus was going to bring and, and, and fleshing out how all of these things uh, are satisfied in Christ and then understanding that while those things may no longer be binding on us, the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law, the moral aspects of the, of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, are binding on all men all, for all time. And they have always been, even before the law was given on Mount Sinai, we understood what murder was, right? We saw that in Cain and Abel. That was that, the intent of that law was still there before it was ever given. So instead of fleshing all that stuff out and, and teaching doctrine in that way, it seems that he wants to just uh, stay on the peripheral and and don't don't dive into those deep things and don't don't worry about all that stuff in God's word and to me that that's a, tra a travesty because one of the things Jesus said to those who were his uh, to Peter right you remember when Peter had denied Christ three times and Jesus restored him and what did he tell him to feed his sheep right and what was he talking about feeding him he's talking about feeding the word and what did Peter tell Timothy preached the word, right? So what were we talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament. That was the word that they had in that day. They were they were living the what would become the New Testament. So I got I got to hurry up. Uh, very quickly, just so you know, the fundamental is number one. He's his fun, first fundamental was Jesus is God's Son and our King. And so hey, nothing wrong with that. I, I agree with that one hundred percent. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you got to believe that, right? Uh, that is uh, the foundation upon which uh, the, the 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 church was built, right? And then number two, Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God the Father is like. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. The author of Hebrews tells us that explicitly, right? That Jesus is the exact image of God. He represents God and the Father. And Jesus himself said, if you want to know the Father, look at me. 
then number three says Jesus defines sin specifically. Now here's where I have a little problem with this one because here's how he defines sin. Uh, he say, this, this is how he says Jesus defines sin specifically. Anything that harms you or others, period. Well, that's a very sophomoric uh, understanding of what sin is. Yes, there is some truth in that because sin harms you and it harms others, right? But sin goes a lot deeper than that. And when we talked about that sermon, I dealt with, with uh, David in Psalm 51. Uh, David's sin against Bathsheba. David's sin against Uriah. David's sin against the nation of Israel. But how did David look at that? David looked at that sin as a sin against God and God alone. Now, that doesn't mean the sin wasn't against. He didn't understand it being against Bathsheba and against uh, Uriah and against the, the nation of Israel. He understood all of that. He sinned against all of those people. But ultimately, sin goes far deeper than that. It is an affront and it is an egregious rebellion against a holy, righteous, eternal God. And that is why Jesus had to come and do what we could not do. Because if sin was just merely something that harms you or, or me then why couldn't we just, hey, I'm sorry about that, right? I, I don't need to do that anymore. God, forgive me for that. Why does that demand an eternal, I mean, why does that, one, lead to eternal punishment? And why does it demand that, the, that God himself come into humanity and die on a cross and shed his blood for that sin? Because that's a really superficial way of understanding uh, what sin is. And unfortunately, I think that's going to lead to other areas of thinking that have already been, uh, I guess, brought forth early on in Andy Stanley's, and I don't want time to talk about that in his understanding, but uh, in his theology. But that that's going to lead to some of this cultural acceptance of some of the cultural things that we see um, in our in our culture today. If that is if that is uh, the totality of your understanding of what sin is. Number four, Jesus promised justice. Um, in the end and invites us to trust him in the meantime. And again, that, that's really, really, really needs a whole lot more unpacking, right? Because what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to ultimately bring about justice? He's gonna, he's gonna, he is going to pour out God's wrath on, on this world, right? He, he's the agent of God's wrath, God the Father's wrath on this world. All you got to do is read Revelation. All you got to do is read Matthew 20, uh, 24-25. And you're going to see that Jesus is ultimately going to judge this world. And part of that judgment is pouring out, pouring out his wrath on sinful humanity who is in rebellion uh, against God. And so again, really, really shallow stuff. Uh, number five, Jesus, uh, that Jesus died for your sin to reconcile you uh, to God. Well, why do you got to be reconciled to God if sin is just something that harms you and harms other people? Seems like to me, all you need to do is be reconciled to other people if that's all sin is. So anyway, uh, once he got to that part, he kind of got to get a little, little squirrely because it doesn't all, it doesn't all add up and it doesn't all make sense. Uh, then number six, the Jesus established an uh, ecclesia, the church, called out ones, uh, a movement, a group of people that we call the church, and the church we discover is God's agent of transformation uh, personally, culturally, and ultimately globally. Uh, not necessarily anything in that I, dis I would disagree with. He, he did call out his people to be uh, people of the kingdom and to be salt and light in this world and to bring the gospel to all nations, all people groups. 
then number seven, Jesus said at the very end of this ministry, I want you to take what I've taught you and I want you to teach it to others. Uh, I want you to teach every nation, every people, every, na- uh, every nation and every generation to do what I have taught you to do. So anyway, he, he talks about the great commandment or great commission, right? That, that's what God's called us to do. And here's the problem with this because I know what he's going to say in this sermon is in his mind, and again, not, not to try to speak for his mind, but from the best I can understand from this sermon and, and the way he's taught in these other sermons and other things he said, in his mind, he's specifically literally talking about the, the things that Jesus said in the red letters, what we would call the red letters in the Bible. Those are the things he wants us to teach, teach and say. Well, well, and in one sense, that is true. But one of the things that Jesus said in those red letters is Matthew 22. When they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He says to them, uh, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. And so if you think about Jesus's ethic of love, the Christian ethic of love that Jesus portrayed, that ultimately we are to love right, and love one another, and the way we demonstrate we love God is by loving one another, then we got to go all the way back to what he said right there in Matthew 22, because how is he telling us that we ought to love? Well, what did Jesus do? He summarized the moral code of God. He summarized the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments. You know, uh, have no other gods before before me. Uh, don't make any graven images. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how we know how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you want to know more details on that, you can go look up the sermon series we, we're doing on the Ten Commandments because God's law is exceedingly broad. There are face value aspects to it, but there are deeper implications in all of those on how we go about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So in order to understand that, we've got to go beyond just the red letters in in the New Testament. We've got to take into consideration all of Scripture because Jesus just told us that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets for him, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, uh, the, the Tanakh, the, the, the Torah, the, the wisdom literature, and uh, the prophets. And so Jesus' uh, Jesus's words are not limited to just what he says in the red letters. They're always hitched back to the rest of Scripture. And the same thing with the second, com- the second commandment that is like it, love your neighbors yourself. How do I know how to do that? Because Jesus has just, again, summarized for me the second table of the law, the six commandments that deal with our horizontal relationship. How do I know how to love my neighbor as myself? Well, I need to go back and examine Exodus chapter 20. I need to go back and examine Deuteronomy. I forget exactly which chapter is in Deuteronomy, uh, 4, 12, something like that. Go back to Deuteronomy where the law is given again. I need to examine what God meant in those laws in in, in the moral code so I know what. To, how to love my neighbor as myself as God has required of me. So again, a little bit uh, misleading and shallow in his understanding uh, in those things, at least from my opinion. All right. And then the eighth one is what this sermon is all about. And it comes down to the inerrancy of uh, scripture. And uh, I don't know where I've got it marked at in here. Try to look at these pages right now. This is 
Um, all right, uh, verse. I keep saying verse. Uh, this 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 was around uh, time step time step ten thirty four ten minutes thirty four seconds into it. He kind of gets to the topic that he's going to talk about, and it deals with the idea of inerrancy. This is number eight. Uh, it says most most evangelical Christians, of which I am one, most evan- in evangelical Christians hold to some biblical view or some uh, view of biblical inspiration, infallibility, or inerrancy. Um, so yes, inspiration, infallibility, and or inerrancy. Most would believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God, that it has, it is inerrant, that it asserts truth and that it is infallible and that it is impossible for God to err. So it's impossible for his word to err. Uh, and he says, uh, most of you probably do. Uh, but he goes on to say, if I gave you these words that you probably couldn't even examine or couldn't even define what those words are. And unfortunately, that is true. But that doesn't minimize the Bible and its importance and its significance and its infallibility or its inerrancy. Uh, it doesn't minimize what the Bible is uh, at all. It just says that we're not doing a good job of teaching doctrine and teaching sound doctrine to people once they become followers of Jesus Christ, to use Andrew Stanley's term, once they become Christians, once they, once they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We are to continue to teach them, and we are to teach sound doctrine. And how do we do that? Well, same way Paul told Timothy to do it, teach the word. All right, so we ought to teach God's word systematically and teach sound doctrine. We ought not to avoid it just because uh, it may be a difficult thing and people might not understand it completely. Well, the reality is we're never going to understand it completely this side of heaven because we see in a mirror uh, dimly. Uh, all right, so this is an important part, I guess, that I want to talk about and in, in, uh, starts at about 16 minutes in. Uh, I have on my, my paper and my notes, Danger Will Robinson. So <laughs> it must be the uh, uh, dangerous fault that he has. So here's here's the bottom line, he says. This is the bottom line, is that when it comes to what you must believe about the Bible in order to be a follower of Jesus, it really boils down to this. All right, he's fixing to tell us. Bottom line, this is all you have to believe about the Bible if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? You have to believe when it comes to the Bible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, all right, not and, so the implication is you can pick one of these. You don't have to pick all of them. You can pick all of them if you want, but just pick one of these at least. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You have to believe, if you want to be a follower, faithful follower of Jesus Christ, this is all you have to believe about the Bible, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are reliable accounts of actual events. Uh, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are all are a reliable account of an action uh, actual event, because if you adopt any one of the four Gospels as something that is re- a reliable account or actual events, you, you're you're there because both of, and again, the wording on this, and it's got to be with YouTube's ability to uh, work this transcript out with their AI algorithms or whatever. It doesn't do a good job sometimes uh, because it doesn't sound this bumbly when you listen to it. Uh, 
You're there because both of or all four of these gospels present Jesus as God's son and your king. And so anyway, he goes back to that very first one that you got to believe that Jesus is God's final king, that he's God's son and he's a final king. And out of that flows all the rest of these. But here's the danger in what he's just told us to do. You, right? You just pick whichever one, whichever book of those four now you don't worry about the rest of it you just pick those four one of those four and you let that be let that be your uh, authority for uh your scriptural authority that's it just those four you, whichever one you want don't have to pick all four just pick one of those four and that's that's good you're good with it right and the rest of it you know unhitch from the old testament you don't worry about those things that are difficult and hard in the old don't even worry about the things that are difficult and hard in the new testament you know even peter said hey some of what paul's writing that stuff's tough right it's tough to understand and he even equates paul's writings in his epistles he equates paul's writing with scripture right and, and so the idea is you know you don't don't worry about the rest of it just pick one of those four and, and again what he's trying to do is get people to zero in on the the, the event of the resurrection of jesus christ and it, what he always says hey if some if a man if a person can predict his death burial and resurrection if he can if he can predict his own resurrection and pull it off then i just go with what that person says well here's the problem with that if if Jesus is God, okay, and he is, there's no question about that. If Jesus is God, then God's word is inspired. So the totality of scripture, the Old and the New Testament, is all the words of Jesus. And I get it. The event of the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is ultimately the culmination of uh, redemptive history as it relates to um, taking care of sin once and for all, right? The ultimate culmination of salvation will be when Christ returns again in, in the eschaton. And all, everything that the Old Testament was talking about was pointing toward the coming of Messiah and him dying on the cross and him being buried and him being raised again on the third day. And how do I know that? Because whenever Paul preaches, you know what Paul says? Paul says that this is what Jesus did. He atoned for our sin, right? He died on the cross. And what does he say? He says, he's over in Ephesians. He says, Jesus died on the cross. How? How does he know that? He says, according to the scripture. He was buried and raised again on the third day, according to the scripture. So what does he do? Yes, he, he talks about the event. He talks about the person, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and his faith is firmly rooted in that, but his faith is also rooted in the reality that scripture had already prophesied that Jesus was going to do what Jesus said he was going to do. And that's where I think Andy Stanley is making his mistake because he is leaving the door open for people to say well I, I i like this part of scripture and i don't like that part of scripture so i'm just picking this and and i'm just going to be he's opening the door wide open for this idea of red letter christianity all i'm gonna worry about is the red letters of jesus christ well you can't fully understand all the red letters of jesus christ unless you understand the black letters that are around them and the black letters that are in the rest of the bible and i get it part of what he wants to what he says is hey these guys didn't have a the bible right that's 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 the thing he always says when 
when I got my Bible, if you listen to the previous sermon or at least one of the previous sermons, when I got my Bible, it was already wrapped and mapped, right? And the idea is he got it in bound form. And, you know, all, all of us in, in, in modern uh, society, if you're a Christian, you have a bound Bible. That's all we've grown up with is a bound Bible, right? We've had the Old and the New Testament, and we got multiple Bibles in our house. And he is right. In the first century, uh, and for, for, for most of human history, there was not one single bound copy of the scripture. But where he is misleading people is the idea that they didn't have scripture. They absolutely did have scripture. How do I know that? Because everywhere Paul went, if you look at Acts chapter 17, when Paul, in particular when he goes to the Bereans, right? He, he goes to one, everywhere he went, he went to a synagogue first. And he, when he went to that synagogue, he reasoned from the scripture. So yeah, that scripture probably was housed in that synagogue and people didn't have, most people didn't have scrolls and, uh, of the scripture in their homes. But to say that they did not have scripture is misleading at best. They did have scripture. And what does Paul do? And, and another thing he talks about, he's going to say, hey, most of these people were illiterate anyway. They couldn't have read scripture if they had it. But you know what? Paul still ties his teaching about who Jesus is, and he argued from that scripture and and pointed people to Christ from that scripture, whether they could read it or not, right? Now, I know the people in the synagogue that he was probably talking to, at least the religious leaders, them, those would have been literate, but there were people who were uh, illiterate in that day, but it didn't negate the fact that they had scripture and even the Bible, Paul, Jesus, even anticipated and expected them and held them accountable for the scripture that they did have. Case in point, when Jesus had risen from the dead and he was, <clears throat> there were two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus come up to them and he, he says, hey, what's going on? And they said, hey, are you the only person, this is my paraphrase, you the only person in this city that has no, had no clue of what's been going on? That this Jesus, right, he was handed over, he was crucified, he was killed and he was buried. And then there are some women who were, our, were, were among our disciples and they went and they found the tomb empty. And then some of the, the, the apostles, some of the, the other leaders went and they found the same thing. And then you know what Jesus did? Jesus took them to the scripture. He says, listen, in essence, you ought to have known this was going to happen because of what Moses and the prophets wrote. So what did he do? He tied it back to the scripture, and these were common, everyday, ordinary people who may have been illiterate. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say they were or they weren't, but he still held them accountable for the truth of the scripture. And the same thing, if you think about it, uh, uh, and, and I understand it doesn't like this because it comes from a parable that Jesus shared, because uh, I've heard him critique this argument. I think there's a um, video that he has with, uh, oh man, it's uh unbelievable is the radio show the podcast that comes on side of out of england britain uh and it uh he and jeff durbin he and jeff durbin who's pastor of apologia church uh, in arizona i think it may be mesa in arizona i don't know somewhere in arizona anyway they were on there when andy stanley had come out with this idea of unhitching from the old testament kind of thing and had produced his book i think uh irresistible's name of andy stanley's book and so they talked about this 
aspect on that video, and, and I think Jeff Durbin brought up this idea in Luke, in Luke chapter 16 of um, the rich man and Lazarus, and I understand he poo-pooed that a little bit because it was a parable. But, hey, I thought we were to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and or John as reliable. Pick one of them. Well, hey, Luke is reliable. So what, what did Jesus, and we're supposed to believe what Jesus said, right, especially. So here's what Jesus said in that parable to the rich man, or I mean, to, about the rich man and Lazarus. You know, the rich man died and went to hell, not because he was rich, but because he had, uh, he had in essence, not bowed the knee to God and not believed to God. He was in rebellion against God. And so Lazarus, uh, who had faith in God believed God he died and went to uh, the bosom of Abraham and the rich man says hey here's what he asked Abraham he says hey send Lazarus back from the dead send him back to my father's house because I have brothers and if surely if they see someone come back to from the dead come to them and tell them then they would believe and they won't have to suffer this torment that I'm suffering again paraphrasing a little bit and here's what Abraham responded to him as Jesus tells it now if we can't believe what Jesus says I don't know who we can believe right uh, especially Andy Sandy hey after all Andy if if a man can can predict his own death burial and resurrection then I just go with what he says well this is what he says. He says to uh, he says that Abraham says to this rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. What is he saying? They have the scripture, right? And then the rich man replies, No, if they but if they had somebody come back from the dead, surely they believe them. And he says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophet, they're not even going to believe someone who comes back from the dead. Isn't that powerful? And here. It's where Andy Stanley's problem lies with this way of thinking, I, I believe. Because Jesus, yes, he, he, he rose from the dead, and we celebrate that every Sunday. That's why we come to worship on Sundays, right? But how many people still do not believe, even though one came back from the dead? Countless millions still don't believe. Because even though Jesus came back from the dead. And so Andy Stanley's problem is his misunderstanding of the depravity of humanity. And ultimately that's going to get, that's ultimately where we need to get at, I think. He's got a problem understanding the infallibility of God's word, I think, because I don't think he believes Quite honestly, he says he's conservative and he says he's an evangelical and he says, because he studied under Norman Geisler who, you know, wrote the, uh, you know, the treatise on uh, inerrancy, uh, that he can make an argument for the inerrancy of the Bible. Just give him three weeks and your undivided attention. He can do that. Well, do it. Right. Uh, secondly, uh, but I, I really don't think that he, he thinks that's a real important issue. Right, that in the Bible, I think that there's some things that he believes in the Bible that may not necessarily be accurate and true, and that's just my conjecture from what he says. But here's what I understand: his ultimate problem is, and it's the same problem that um, uh, most uh, of evangelicalism has today. And I'm I'm going to end with this. I'm about 49 minutes in, so I'm going to try to end with this and wrap it up. Okay, not look at the notes anymore. Uh, there's a lot more that can be said about that sermon. You need to go and listen to it, but. Here's the problem, and I get it. That's why I said I want to try to be fair to Andy Stanley's motives, okay? I don't agree with how he's going about this. I don't agree with his uh, theology on this, right? I think it's, it's, a, it's a pathway to heresy, and it's a downhill uh, slope, okay? 
Here's what he doesn't understand, I think. I say it this way. I think he understands what I'm about to say, the reality of it. I just don't know that he buys into it, okay, or he believes it. Because, again, he's not an ignorant person in the sense of education, okay? He doesn't understand that men are by nature opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men are by nature opposed to God. And it takes the regenerative work of God to open our eyes to our need for a savior. And so what his motives are, I think, is, hey, I see all of these people who grew up, and, and again, I think he's targeting those kinds of people in particular that grew up in church or grew up around Christianity, and they have a real shallow understanding of truth and doctrine, and they've based it on a, uh, uh, you know, maybe an inferior understanding of the Bible and and truth and doctrine and theology and so it's kind of shaky at best for them because they don't have all the pieces of the puzzle none, none of us have all the pieces of the puzzle but i'm just saying that they start off uh, handicapped because they don't have a clear sound systematic teaching of god's word that they've been feasting on as believers and so eventually something comes up in their life a crisis or somebody points out something in the bible that they don't understand or they can't explain but rather than go and begin to study and dig and try to come up with, you know, why this is the way it is, uh, I forget, there's one article I read that says, you know, that's the way scientists do, right? When scientists come up against uh, something that they've never seen before, that they cannot explain in in uh, creation or in nature that seems to be opposed to what they already know well they don't just throw in the book and say well science doesn't mean anything anymore we can't believe any of that stuff and they just quit no uh, they continue to dig and study and e examine and understand until they come to some understanding of it and why we why will we not do that with the bible because the problem is not god's word the problem is not god and it's not god's word the problem is us but Andy Stanley and many of those who are like him believe that we have to help God out, that God is not capable enough to do what is required to draw men to himself. After all, what did Jesus say? If I be lifted up, what will he do? He will draw men to himself. He is at work doing that. And so we think that we have to help God out. If we have enough, if we're logical enough, if we have or, or, you know, if we are, or if we just ignore all these things that are difficult and we just concentrate in on, uh, you know, these minimalistic things, uh, then we can attract more people and maybe they'll come in and buy in. And But Christianity is a lot more than that. Being a disciple of Christ is not more than that. It's about understanding who God is. It's about living in light of who God is. It's about living in light of the righteousness that God has bestowed upon you. And the only way that that can happen is for us to be sanctified by the truth of God. And then what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17, he says, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. And then what does he say? Your word is truth. If we're going to be sanctified followers of Jesus Christ, then we must, we must be students of uh, the word of God. But again, Andy Stanley and those like him 
have this misunderstanding that people are anxious to follow after Jesus Christ and they're just chomping at the bits to come, but it's because of these insecurities they have about God's word that people have pointed out. If we'll just leave all that alone, then we can help them over that hump, right? Well, I want to read to you what Peter says in his epistle, uh, his first epistles in chapter two. And let's just start in verse one and then I'm going to read this and make a few comments and we're going to bring this to, to a close. And this really drives home this point about the idea that men are naturally opposed to God's word and it takes our God, the gospel of Jesus Christ and it takes God through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth that we even need a savior, that we are sinners. Because we see the evidence of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter one, but we suppress that truth, right? We, we push that truth down. Uh, it's not that we're running after that truth when we see it. No, we suppress it. God has to work and move in us first. So Peter begins by saying, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is 1 Peter 2, 1. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Indeed, uh, you have tasted that the Lord is good and you have, you have come to him a living stone rejected by men. See, there's the first allusion to it. He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. How we're going to know how to be a holy priesthood? Right, God's word. Uh, to offer spiritual sacrifice accountable, uh, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How do we offer that spiritual sacrifice? Well, you ought to put in your uh, notes, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, verse 6 in Second Peter, or first, 1 Peter 2. For it stands it, for it stands in scripture. Where, where does Peter go? Well, how about that? He goes to scripture, right? I dare him ground his faith in scripture. Uh, behold, I am laying in Zion, and guess what scripture? The Old Testament. Uh, I am laying in Zion a stone, uh, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He goes all the way back to the Old Testament to validate what he just said about Jesus Christ and people's faith in Jesus Christ. How dare he? Uh, so uh, he says in verse seven, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he says in verse 8, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus Christ is. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. People are offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our natural inclination when it comes to uh, Almighty God. We are in rebellion against him. And that's the part, that's the part of uh, anthropology that people don't want to talk about, right? That's what sin is all about, right? We are in rebellion against God. It's not just hurting other people or hurting ourselves. It does both of those things, but it is a rebellion against God. And it has caused our soul to be, our, our, our nature to be totally and utterly depraved, so much so that we, in and of ourselves, do not have the ability to move toward God. It takes God moving toward us first. After all, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. It says, they stumble. Why do they stumble? Because they do what? They disobey the word. What word is he talking about? Because he's writing portion of the New Testament right now, right? This becomes part of the New Testament. He's talking about God's 
word, the scripture, what we call the Old Testament. It is because they disobey God's word. Where's all this rooted at in Peter's mind? It's rooted at rooted in the scripture. And the scripture of his day was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. It says, they stumble because they do not believe the word as they were, and this is another topic for another day, but you can't overlook this phrase, as, as they were destined to do. And therein, again, lies a problem for Andy Stanley. Uh, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we know he's talking to Gentiles, both probably mixed audience, Jews and Gentiles, but this statement is particularly for Gentiles. And again, where does he get this from? He ultimately gets this from the Old Testament. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, uh, which wage war against your uh, soul. And so he goes on uh, in here. And, but where does Peter anchor everything he believes? He anchors it in scripture. Yes, his faith is in Christ and Christ alone, right? But how does he know about that Christ and Christ alone? Ultimately, yes, he lived with him and walked with him. But every bit of that is validated for Peter by the scripture. And, and what about Paul? Everywhere Paul went, he anchored what he was teaching about Christ in the scripture. Even when he went to Mars Hill and he talked to those Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, while, yes, while he didn't say, as Andy Stanley uh, likes to um, chide, he didn't say the Bible says, right, or the scripture says, he started where they were, and I get it. That's, what, that, that's ultimately what Andy Stanley's trying to do, is start where they are in their context and then lead them to Christ. But you can't throw the the baby out with the bathwater. You can't throw out the scripture and deny the ultimate infallibility. And I'm not saying he, he will sell you. He doesn't deny the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture and he can make the case for it. But some of the statements he's made lead me to believe that he believes there are things in God's word that are just absolutely not true. Okay. But anyway, uh, Paul started where they were in Acts 17, but he ultimately led them to Jesus Christ and he validated that by ultimately the resurrection. And Andy Stanley's, hey, we need, to, we need to anchor our faith in the resurrection. Well, what was it that caused them to stop listening to him when he got to the resurrection? There were some saying, hey, that's crazy talk. We ain't gonna listen anymore to that. So the point I'm trying to make it is that just because you, grant, you, you, want to, you want to ground everything simply in the resurrection of Christ doesn't mean that people are gonna naturally come flocking to it. Because people are opposed to God by nature and they resent God by nature. They're in rebellion against God by nature and they run away from God by nature. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit in their life to bring them to believe the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. And ultimately, that's validated in Scripture. And incidentally, in, in uh, Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, uh, there were really three responses to that. There were some who says, we're not listening to this anymore. This guy's talking crazy talk with this resurrection stuff. Then there were those who says, hey, we'll listen to you a little bit further. All right. And then there were some who believed right there on the spot. 
Now, you, you, you tell me, what's the difference between those people? What is the difference between those people? The ultimate difference is God moving in the lives of some, right, who open their eyes so that they may see. It's not because Paul, uh, you know, they, they understood Paul differently one way or another. It's not about them. It's all about God and what God did uh, in those in those people. But anyway, uh, we can go. I could go on and on about uh, this issue of the infallibility of Scripture. It's important for us to understand that all of God's word is important and significant and yes there are some things that may in some ways be weightier i.e jesus's death burial and resurrection but it doesn't diminish the significance and the importance of all of scripture because the rest of scripture validates what we learn about jesus in what we call the new testament and quite frankly, the only way we really ultimately know about Jesus' death, burial, and re- res- resurrection is because the Bible tells us so. And I, I get it. You know, we, he's, we, his, his part of his pro, uh, part of his thought process is we live in a post-Christian world, and people don't. You know, the Bible's not a good starting point anymore. Anymore. Well, how do, how do you deal with that issue with Gentiles in the Old Testament? I mean, in in the New Testament era, in the first century church. Well, the Bible wasn't a starting place for them either. They didn't have it. But where did the apostles always ground their message about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? They always grounded it in the scripture they had that day. And the scripture they had that day was what we call the Old Testament. Quite frankly, it was probably the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that the majority of the quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament come from. So anyway... Just saying all this to say, pray, pray for Andy Stanley. I mean, he is a powerfully influential person in uh, evangelicalism and Christianity in this country and, and around the world. And I'm, I'm afraid that what he is doing is continuing to exacerbate the problem of people's uh, being made disciples of Jesus Christ. All right. He, he's, he's continuing to exacerbate the problem of easy believism, people getting their ticket punched, and he's even becoming more egregious in that he's telling people, hey, you can pick and choose out of these four. Don't worry about the rest of them. You can pick and choose out of these four. You know, you just choose out of these, these four Gospels, which one you want to hang on to, and just let that be your authoritative word. Well, all of God's words authoritative, and Jesus says so, and Jesus believed that right? It can't be broken. And everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus shared with us in in what we call the New Testament was grounded in the Old Testament. So it's a very dangerous road to walk down when you begin to leave the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture behind. Now I get it. Person comes to faith in Christ, even an adult, you know, I was thinking then maybe, you know, an eight-year-old kid comes to faith in Christ. Hey, they don't have any idea or understand the full capacity of what inerrancy and infallibility is about, and most adults don't. So I'm not saying you've got to be a biblical scholar and understand those things, but what we do have to, we do, have to do as leaders and teachers and, and preachers is we have to help equip people to understand these things as they grow and mature in their faith in Jesus Christ, and they can, they can engage in these intelligent conversations that they will encounter in this world as people try to attack uh, God's word, but really, God's God's word doesn't need us to help uh, protect it. It's like Charles Haddon Purden said. It's kind of like saying you got you got to help uh, you know uh, a lion protect itself. All you got to do is let that lion loose. He's going to protect itself, right? So, 
how, how do we gain faith? The Bible says, if you got the King James Version, version faith comes by hearing and hearing how? By the word of God. Now, if you've got a modern, modern translation, it's going to say the word of Christ. <clears throat> Most of them will say the words of Christ. But here's the thing. The words of Christ are the words of God because Christ is God. Well, that's my spiel on that. Uh, take it for what it's worth. And may the Lord keep you and bless you and cause his face to shine on you. Until next time, you can find us again on YouTube, Rumble, and on our podcast, RK Ministries. And if you got any idea where you want to go systematic theology or you go, want to go church history, which you know still will involve some theology, uh, just leave it in the comments or send me a text or something. And we'll talk to you uh, next time.